On today's episode of The Raise Podcast, I caught up with Nate Clapham, the Assistant Vice President for Development and Annual Giving at the University of Northern Iowa. Nate's approach to fundraising is simple. He expects to win. We covered a lot of ground, including why Nate is so passionate about education philanthropy, why he pursued a master's in this field, and how he evaluates every ask with the six rights strategic giving framework. And it was fun catching up with another Iowan. Here we go. Greetings, Ray's podcast listeners. Brent Grenna coming in live from my home office as we all settle into this new normal uh, or abnormal uh, associated with COVID-19 coronavirus. We are in the thick of uh, the university and broader global response, and we're trying to move forward and continue to advance our discussions around the advancement space, um, but at the same time being sensitive to what's going on in the world outside. It is my privilege to welcome Nate Clapham from the University of Northern Iowa to the show today. Nate serves as the Assistant Vice President for Development and Annual Giving at UNI, uh, has been a listener of the podcast, and Nate just told me that 15 minutes ago, he was interviewing someone who referenced these podcast episodes uh, with no prompting at all. So, Nate, welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here, Brent. Thanks for having me. And that that is 100% true. Uh, literally 15 minutes ago, I had a candidate um, who is who has experience in higher education, not necessarily in fundraising, uh, referenced the Ray's podcast and, and said he had listened to 18 episodes of uh, the Ever True Race podcast, so um, it's an honor to be on here now. Absolutely. Well, we're we're thrilled to uh, to welcome you, and and obviously there's a lot going on in the world, but I do think uh, in the midst of of trying to establish uh, an immediate response and and establishing new approaches to work, there is still uh, more than ever in some ways a need for philanthropy to move forward, and so I'm excited to learn more about your professional journey. Uh, and to get uh, your perspective on life at UNI and then also uh, more broadly. We've gotten to know each other over the last uh, six months or so, um, maybe a little bit longer than that through the case circuit. Uh, and, and I'd love to just know a little bit about uh, your professional journey to this point and what your uh, team and, and day-to-day looks like at Northern Iowa. How'd yeah. you get to advancement? Yeah, thanks. Uh, first, I, I do want to say we're you know, us, you and I were thinking of you and, and everyone ever true through this situation and send our best wishes for everyone to stay safe. So thank you. Likewise. Uh, you know, uh, grew up in, in Northeast Iowa, just like you, Brent, in a small town. Um, I went to co-college as a student athlete, which is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, um, and had an incredible experience there. Um, and part of that experience was working in the admissions office. Uh, as an undergrad, providing tours to prospective families and prospective students, and fell in love with that. Uh, fell in love with meeting new people, uh, making connections, building relationships, um, in a sense, selling the school and all of the great things that happened there. And um, so when I when I was graduating, I wanted to get into admissions work at Co. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have an opening, uh, which which is understandable. But I, so I took a job in the private sector in downtown. Cedar Rapids, but had through my relationships that I had built at Co, um, was invited to apply to the director of annual giving at Co in 2009. Um, I had known the vice president who was there, and, and I, when he reached out, I said, "I know nothing about fundraising." He said, "I don't care. I want you to apply. We'll we'll figure it out." <clears throat> um, so I did. Was connected there with uh, uh, a former Co grad who actually. Um, as serves as a mentor of mine that helped me immensely uh, learning the ins and outs of annual giving uh, from direct mail to phone um, to email was just starting, you know, starting to become a, a more significant channel. Uh, so I spent some time doing that, moved into a development officer role at Co. And then in 2012 uh, was, had an opportunity to come on board at the University of Northern Iowa Foundation. We had actually moved to Cedar Falls as a family um, so this was going to be a great opportunity for me uh, to join you and I. So I joined uh, the foundation here in 2012 as director of development for one of the colleges. Uh, had an incredible experience raising money on behalf of that college, uh, social and behavioral sciences, and then moved into a 
to a management role about four years ago um, into an outreach position, um, working with communications and stewardship and annual giving. And then most recently, as you referenced, uh, about the beginning of November, um, when a new vice president came on, shifted roles to oversee our collegiate development officers. Um, we have six development officers housed in our colleges and then also annual giving. Love it. Great overview. And I, I want to uh, get back to where you are now, but going back in time a little bit, I can't imagine a better training for development than being a campus tour guide. Uh, when you think about um, uh, just being able to understand the overall story, what differentiates an institution, uh, to be able to maybe even answer, uh, you know, competitive positioning questions uh, as families are contemplating uh, various alternatives. I mean, what was that like? Any memorable moments from the campus tour experience um, that that you think back on now? Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. The parallels are, are, are definitely similar. Um, you know, those tours were really an opportunity to build a relationship in a matter of 45 to 60 minutes, much like the work that we do now sitting across the table from a donor. Um, so it's, it's really about asking those questions. Uh, what are their passions? What are their goals? What would they like to achieve? What kind of experiences are they looking for? Um, so it was, it was an opportunity to make that connection with the students and in addition to their families. Um, the parents. And how much of that was really training versus maybe more intuitive for you? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure on the spectrum of, of campus tour guides, there are you know, varying uh, degrees of professionalism and whatnot. Uh, how did you think about, I don't know, the, the skill of, of the sale? In, in uh, yeah, I, I don't know that there was any skill. It just was, it, it, I, I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy building relationships. But, you know, when I, when I graduated, I remember just saying, all I want is a job where I work with people. I just, I just wanted to work with people. Uh, my wife gives me a hard time all the time about why can't we just go to the grocery store? and get what we need and then get out. Why do you have to talk to everybody? Uh, so I, I think it's just one of those things where I just enjoyed the curiosity of, and of learning about people and what they were uh, wanting out of a college experience and, and hoping that we could offer that to them. Uh, some of the, to, one of the coolest experiences actually happened after the tour and the decision was done. So following every tour, I would write a handwritten note to each student. And there was probably three or four times where the next fall, I'd be in the cafeteria or walking across campus and a fresh, this freshman would run up to me and said, hey, you're my tour guide. I still have the note that you wrote me. You know, you were one of the, it, was, it was really, really neat to hear those type, that type of feedback and that type of impact on what, what is a very big decision in people's lives. I love that. I worked the uh, the desk at the athletic center at Brown, and and so while it wasn't an official tour, from time to time families would just drop in, and and then you'd you know start to chat with with them about why they were visiting and and what my sort of student athlete experience was like. So it's sort of uh, you know sort of a, a similar vibe. But I've got a couple of people who who when I see them today still talk about, you know, yeah. meeting uh, at the front desk of the athletic center. So I, I totally get that. Yeah. And, and like many people, the, your first advancement job was uh, for your alma mater. And I feel like, you know, that's sort of an interesting transition when you go from the, the student experience, the student athlete experience to really kind of being on the inside. Uh, and so in a certain regard, I'm sure you were, really well positioned because you understood the campus, the culture, you had just benefited from the education, uh, but there was so much to learn from the lingo of advancement to all the acronyms people use to, you know, your, your, your colleagues and so forth. Um, and I guess that was also a time when we were sort of in the midst of uh, the financial crisis. And I'm curious how much that was top of mind as we are now sort of potentially in the midst of another uh, if not financial crisis, at least global, uh, you know, crisis that has financial implications, uh, certainly in the markets. And so I'm curious if, if that was a factor or if you're able to just focus on the, the basic blocking and tackling of, of advancement at that time. Yeah, it, it was both. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we talked about, I remember um, specifically at Co and then with um, this, this individual that, that helped me come on board was, you know, 
we can't, and, and this was reinforced in my, in my master's, you know, one of the things we can't do as fundraisers is make assumptions for our donors. Um, you know, so we are going through some difficult times right now, um, very, very difficult and serious, just like in 2009 with the financial crisis. Um, so there has to be some sort of sensitivity towards that approach with fundraising and acknowledging the situation that's happening. Um, at the same time, maybe more now than ever, philanthropic support is, is critical for, for the success of students um, that are going to need that, that backing. Um, and we need to continue to move forward and, and, and approach our work just as we do each day, maybe with a little bit more sensitivity, but also there's going to be individuals that still want to support and want to do it in a significant way. So we, we can't make assumptions there for them. So going back to Co, you know, I remember one of the first things we took a look at was the phone um, and just did a deep dive into the analysis of the phone program, where it was at, how many weeks we were calling and, and immediately decided we have to extend this. We're not calling, we're not calling long enough. We're leaving money on the table. So that was one of the first things um, in addition to learning the lingo, no idea what a libunt, what a cybunt, what any of that, what any of that language was, uh, the basic bot blocking and tackling, um, was that, I remember that was one of the first big decisions was extending our calling period to reach more people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that those same kinds of reassessment of which channels are working today, uh, is going to continue to, to happen. I mean, we, obviously are now entering a phase where uh, there will be no or very limited in-person engagement. There will be limited field visits. So every metric that we've had around event attendance all the way through uh, gift officer, you know, visit metrics is going to be reevaluated, if not temporarily, uh, potentially even for longer term here. And so that all, um, you know, has to play out in the coming weeks and months. But but I think that um, you know there are a few better ways to get a crash course into the business of advancement than diving into to the annual fund, especially in a relatively small shop where I'm sure, depending on the day of the week, uh, what you were doing uh, could change pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and we actually just talked about that this morning, Brent, about um, you know what does this new normal look like? You know, you talked about the metrics and whatnot. Is you know what we're having right now? This this Zoom call is that should that be incorporated into the metrics as a you know as a move as a visit and um you know as you have a point of view on that yet or is it uh, too early to say it's too early to tell i think you know we just started talking about this morning i think at some level it's going to have to we're going to have to consider it absolutely Um, because again i think now more than ever we need to continue our engagement with our donors and our prospects, make sure that um, we are here to answer any questions they may have about how things are being handled, but also we, we still have to advance the relationship, continue to um, continue to deliver for, for them, for their philanthropic goals. And so, you know, if we can connect this way, um, that's definitely a, a move that, that should be noted. I- I agree. And and there's kind of a conversation going on on LinkedIn right now about that topic. And we're going to be showcasing some other examples of uh, video stewardship, video cultivation, video solicitation. And I think uh, there is kind of a like maybe a misconception that it's not as good as being in person. Absolutely. I wish we were filming this in Cedar Falls right now. We're not. It isn't as good, but it's pretty good. I think there are ways in the donor context where we might be able to make it even better. I heard something from uh, Keith Hannon at Cornell University the other day where uh, he does a lot of athletics fundraising. And as he's been using Zoom to do some of those stewardship and, and even solicitation uh, conversations, he's been starting to invite coaches or other key stakeholders to join as participants who never could have visited the donor in a field context, but now frankly have more time because of disruptions to athletic schedules and so forth. And so it's kind of a neat opportunity for the donor to get to have a one-on-one conversation with the coach or even student athletes in a way that they never could in a traditional field context. So, you know, there's, there's opportunities for creativity at a moment like this. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think those, those are great insights. Uh, it makes me think brought this quote up this morning and, you know, you're a sports guy and you know, the old Wayne Gretzky quote of don't skate to where the puck is skate to where it's going. And I think that's exactly what, what we need to be thinking about doing as an industry and having those conversations. 
Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm curious though, it's one thing when you, when you are sort of selling the mission of your alma mater, right? You went to co as a student athlete, you're a, you're a campus tour guide where you're selling the mission, you're a beneficiary, you come back to the school, probably a very natural or as natural of a transition as you can have. Um, and then you make the decision to join uh, somebody else's organization. And I'm always curious when you think about kind of the, the, the balance of uh, professional growth with then selling uh, a different mission and how do you get uh, excited about the UNI mission and what makes it uh, distinct and uh, you know do you go on a campus tour uh, when you're when you're joining a new advancement shop I mean is that part of the onboarding if not should it be uh, what was it like to make the decision not to sell uh, the mission of co anymore but but to move to a different institution yeah the, it was one if I'm being very honest it was one I was was concerned about because um, co is a, is and was a very special place to me and you know making the decision to leave the alma mater to to a different institution was a very big decision um, to make and you know I can I can honestly say and, and this is nothing negative towards co it's just how great you and I is um, I've not looked in the rear view mirror once since making that decision it's just been an incredible fit um, the people are amazing and and the one thing to, to talk about the different missions you know the thing that that I, I think that's helped me is I'm an absolutely firm believer in higher education. So whether it's co, whether it's University of Northern Iowa, I just firm firmly believe in, in the opportunities and the the, the the things that higher education can can provide for people. So why do you feel that so strongly, Nate? I mean, what what in your journey helped generate that passion? Because obviously higher ed's under a lot of scrutiny right now. And there's a lot of other people who'd feel the exact opposite of, of how you just um, sort of expressed your commitment to the sector. I feel the way you feel, but what makes you so bullish on the need for, for higher ed um, right now? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. And, you know, I think the top ones for me are um, personal growth, is is like none other i think at that time in your life when you're 18 years old and you think you know everything in the world you get exposed to many different things in higher education some of them positive some of them negative but i think as a whole it makes you grow and and become it, it makes you step back and, and think about things differently um and to me that's what higher education is about it that and it, it does that in the classroom setting, you know. So that I think the academic side, the academy, is extremely important for that to make you think about things differently, look at worldviews differently, have conversations with people that have different thought processes, beliefs, and and maybe question your own. Um, then there's things outside the classroom that, from building lifelong friends to um, whether it's maybe it's collegiate athletics or music or the the fine arts that make you understand how to manage time, make you, make you uh, stretch yourself. Um, and through those, through both of those, you build relationships. And for me, that's, that's the key is in college is where I was able to build relationships personally and professionally that have impacted me in countless ways since graduation. And, and I think will will for, for the foreseeable future. Love it. And so you got excited about the UNI mission. Uh, you jumped at the opportunity. You've obviously had the opportunity for, for growth. What stands out um, along that journey uh, at UNI? Uh, and, and, you know, when you think about maybe some of the favorite memories over the last several years, um, what, uh, what comes to mind? I think one of the uh, <clears throat> one of the things that stands out right away for for me is when I was hired in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences, development was relatively new um, in in that college, and there was the individual before me did an outstanding job, and he's a, he's a good friend of mine, um, laying the groundwork for development and fundraising in in um, social and behavioral sciences. But what was fun was the day that I started was the day the new dean started, and. So her and her and I were able to 
go on this journey together, build a relationship between the two of us, take that external externally and um, forge relationships with, with donors and alumni and friends of, of that college and the institution and have just, you know, I'm really proud of the work that we were able to do and build on what was done before us, but really take it to another level. And, 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 and then since I've moved out of that role, we'll be able to hand that off to the, to the next person to continue that. The dean is still there. Her and I, you know, I consider her a mentor. Um, we, we remain very close. But that was, that was really fun to, to kind of start fresh, her, her and I, on day one um, together and just enjoy the journey along the way. I would imagine in that context, maybe some of the donors were cold, if you will, if there hadn't been kind of a lot of programs or really uh, externally oriented Dean in the, in the past. I mean, did you do anything kind of in somewhat of a startup mode that you'd recommend others consider if they're coming into a similar context? Yeah, I think um, one that I'll always be appreciative of is she, her willingness to, to go with me, to be external and, and to be in front of doors and to know that um, her role is to share the vision and share the passion uh, for that she has for the academic programs and, and the college that she is leading. And I think that was, that was big. We just, we were able to, her and I, I guess the first thing I would recommend is build a relationship with that Dean first. Her and I were able to build a really close and strong relation relationship <clears throat> that allowed us to work well together. So we could kind of, we could kind of know each other's moves and what we were going to say and when we were going to do it um, that just led to a lot of successful relationship building. Um, so can I ask, as you advanced those donor relationships, uh, I'm sure there was a right a, a cultivation phase, just getting to know people. But as you started moving to a phase where you were making the ask, did you make the ask? Did the dean make the ask? Did you trade? I mean, was there uh, you know joint meetings? I mean, just what's that mix uh, of, of work? Yeah, I think that's yeah, it's something that you need to figure out. You have to figure out that right. Who is the right solicitor in in that relationship with that prospective donor. Um, you know, for us, a lot of times that was me. Um, that, that was where I was comfortable. Maybe not that she wasn't, but um, it was just a little bit more natural for me to be able to play off what she just said of really doing an incredible job talking about the impact that a gift could have and then sliding in and, and making the ask and making it, making it a cohesive duo um, that, it didn't feel forced or feel kind of mismatched. It was, uh, it was just a good, it was just a good uh, thing that we had going on. That's great. Um, well, along the journey, I know you uh, felt compelled to pursue, uh, to pursue your, uh, your masters. And I'm just curious if that was something that you'd been thinking about for a while, what the catalyst to actually do that uh, was, and then obviously uh, part of what I was excited to discuss today were some of the specific takeaways uh, from that program. But just tell me a little bit about deciding to pursue your own continuing education. Yeah, it was something that I'd always had in the back of my mind. And, and uh, honestly, I just needed a kick to to get it going. Um, I was yeah. waiting for, yeah, I was waiting for that right time. Right? When's, when, when's the right time to do this? And there's never really a right time um, as a, as a, working professional with a family. And um, so I had a colleague of mine had gone through this program. Um, it was a master's in philanthropy and development at St. Mary's University in Winona, Minnesota. Um, and she had gone through the program and had given my name to the program director who then reached out to me. And it was just the, that was just the little thing I needed to, to make the decision to make, make the move. Um, so when the program director reached out to me, I said, Thank you. <laughs> I've been I've been trying to make trying to pull pull the decision on this. Um, this is what I needed, so uh, decided to apply and, and go through that program, which was a was a tremendous experience and, and learning opportunity. Tell me more about it, uh, and and would you recommend it to others and why? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh it's it's one of the older um, philanthropy and development master's programs in the country, um, and it's evolved as higher education has evolved. So um, the, the format that when I went through was 
Um, it was a blended format. So you did online classes, um, so just like we're doing Zoom meetings, virtual. Um, but you also had a two week residency um, for two summers. So um, summer of 19 and the summer of 18, I spent two weeks on campus in Winona in an intensive um, learning environment where for basically all day and beyond, we slept, ate, talked about, learned about philanthropy um, development um, for, for two weeks straight. And um, it, was, it was just a really neat opportunity, to, one, to, to dive, to do a deep dive into that, into this industry and this world that we live in every day, um, but also to be able to connect with your cohort and the individuals that are going through it with you, with you and hear about their experiences, you know, because not everybody is in higher education. You know, you can, um, there was from the arts to K through 12 to um, Catholic charities to, you know, just community colleges. It was, it was just a great opportunity to, to learn from them. Are you still in touch with that group? Absolutely. Yeah. How, how many people were in the cohort? We had, we have 10 in our cohort. Um, wow. So really tight knit. Yeah. Yeah. So we're still, still in contact. In fact, um, just with the coronavirus happening, we were exchanging, um, we're in group me together. So exchanging our group me messages about what is each institution doing? How are you handling the communications with donors? What are you doing to, um, you know, to engage with your constituents during this time of a little bit un unsteadiness. So yeah. we continue to bounce things off each other and, that's great. And, and so one of the, um, I guess, big takeaways from the program, or you got exposed to this concept that you shared with me previously called uh, the six rights. And I was really intrigued uh, when I first uh, heard you describe this, and, and maybe it's uh, common knowledge within the advancement sector, but I'm guessing a lot of folks haven't been exposed to it. And so I'm wondering if you'd give us just a little bit of a free taste yeah. of the St. Mary's uh, <laughs> uh, degree here and uh, just a little sample in case anybody's interested in learning more about the program. But but tell us about the six rights and why that stood out to you as part of that curriculum. Yeah, it, it was in a, it was actually in the, the last class that I took at St. Mary's called Strategic Giving. Um, and it's, it, was, it was taught by Audrey Kinsey, who is the VP at St. Mary's, who is incredible. I, have, um, I, I hold her in very high regard. And um, it was, it was through a book that we read, um, The Artful Journey by Bill Sturdivant. Um, so if, if anybody's read that, and he talks about uh, these things that need to be done in the cultivation period leading up to, leading up to the solicitation. And in, in class, we talked about the six rights, calling them the six rights. Um, and you know, they, the six rights are the right solicitor, which we talked about um, is, you know, who is that primary player that should be making that ask? Is there a secondary player involved? Um, you know, this is a key and key variable throughout the process of who is making that ask um, the right time. Um, I think that's uh, something that we're all thinking about during our current, current situation. Um, the solicitation should occur when you feel the timing is appropriate. And, and really that's trusting your gut and trusting your instincts and your conversations that you've had with your donor. Um, the right vehicle, is that, is it cash? Is it appreciated assets? Um, is it, is it a deferred gift? What does that deferred gift look like? Is it, you know, is it some sort of trust or is it a bequest in the will? The right location. And what that is, is when you make that ask, um, where, where is the, he or she going to be most comfortable? It's probably on, on their turf, but you know, research shows that when people are comfortable, they respond more positively. Um, so making sure you get that right. Uh, the, and then the last two really go hand in hand, which is I think the right reason, right purpose. You know, there should be a should be a specific purpose for what you're asking for, and then hand in hand the right amount. Um, and 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 asking for that specific amount. When you present that proposal, so what 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 I talk about with our team here at U and I is is as we're going through our moves and talking about the intentional strategy that we're creating for each each prospect um, who we're planning who we're planning to solicit. Do you have the six rights correct? And, and just making sure that as you're as you're building the relationship and moving through, 
that you can check these off and making sure that that all of these are in place. So when that proposal is delivered, you know you you have all these things nailed and should feel very good about the the answer that's going to be given. So as you're doing either one-on-ones with your team or as you've thought about, uh, first of all, thanks for that background. I think it really is interesting. It's a great framework. But as you're trying to apply it, are there questions you ask to help get at whether we've got the right person, the right time, the right vehicle, location, purpose, and amount? Like, how do you start to know? Because some of these you're never really going to know perfectly, but you can reduce the risk of being completely off, uh, I'm sure, through a variety of, of, of questioning or, or other tactics. Yeah, we actually, um, a couple months ago, uh, had a, a strategy meeting because um, with a couple of gift, two gift officers who were working with a donor on a possible ask. And one of them um, had said, yeah, I, I'm just not sure it's the right time. So we got together, um, which is always the, the best thing to do is, is talk through the strategy and have these strategy sessions. And, you know, so I could hear about the background, what, what was done previously, what were the conversations, what's the giving history, um, where you're at in the current one. Um, and through that, through that conversation, it was determined by everybody, it, it, it wasn't the right time. You know, we, we, we needed to do a couple more uh, moves couple more conversations with the individual um, and it wasn't necessarily maybe the right time in their lives either. Um, so uh, through that conversation and, and really it's just asking about what has, what has taken place so far um, asking, why do you feel like it's the right time or maybe why isn't it the right time? Um, and then I think just being able to talk through that helps people and you verbalize it. It helps you come to realization either to move forward or, yeah, maybe I need one more cultivation call just to kind of that pre-proposal conversation um, before before the ask was made. And some of these are probably intertwined. Like, for example, uh, when you think about the right vehicle, well, if it's cash, then now might not be the right time. But if there's a different way to structure it, then now could be the perfect time. And so you probably also have to make sure your team has some level of fluency on just the variety of vehicles and different creative ways of structuring. I just recently spoke with somebody who is, you know, in the midst of, of really making a, a transformational ask, a transformational solicitation, and they were able to package it with a cash plus uh, bequest in a way that actually doubled the gift amount. But not everybody, you know, gets exposure. It took me a long time to get learn to learn about um, some approaches like that. So I'm just curious is that part of your job as a manager, for example, to think about other structuring approaches that could make now be the right time? Because my guess would be of all of these, a development officer could always say, well, it's just not the right time. <laughs> and, you know, is that the one that people would lean on as to why we shouldn't be making the ask? Yeah, I think that's the, that's the easiest one to say um, if it's not ready. And then it gets back to, okay, well, if, if now's not the right time, when do you envision the right time being? Is it is it a life event that that the donor is um, waiting for or going through? Um, you know, because sometimes you can have a conversation with with a donor, and, and I had experience with this, and it wasn't until they retired, and and you know, that's that that was the life event when they made when they announced the retirement and, and moved that when they were ready to make that gift, um, and it was. So understanding, understanding though, each one um, is critical. The right time though is, is one of those, but okay, then how long has the individual been in cultivation mode? You know, has it already, has it been 18 months, 24 months that you've been working with this individual to move them along to get to the solicitation cycle? If it's not there yet, let's talk about why. At any level, right? I mean, yeah, at any level, at any level. Thinking we could do a million, yep. but now I'm not even comfortable asking for a hundred thousand and it's been 24 months at some point, yep. you probably just have to, you know, almost cut your losses and focus, uh, yep. you know, elsewhere. Yep. Uh, I am curious a, a little bit about the right amount. And I think it's, it's common uh, in other sectors where products have price points, there can be some room for negotiation. Um, but in the world of, philanthropy, you will have donors this year who give you $1. 
and who give you over a million dollars and everything in between, how do you start to triangulate around the right amount without asking, well, how much could you give? Yeah. I mean, are there questions or ways that you phrase it even to get within, is it seven figures, six figures, five figures? How do you start to, to feel somebody out without scaring them away, but also not you know, underselling the impact that they could make with something more significant? Yeah. And that's a great question. I think everyone's going to have a different strategy or different approach to that. Um, and no one's right or wrong in their, that, in their approach to that. Um, you know, at, at St. Mary's, when um, going through the strategic giving class, one of the things that we did, here's, you know, and I'm going to give you an insider. We had to basically go through hypothetical, but a real call, moving someone from a discovery so it was with the instructor, with Audrey, the VP, from discovery to cultivation to making the ask, get the clothes, the stewardship. So we had to do all this in a matter of four days. Um, and it was really an interesting process because one thing that, that Audrey stressed is, you know, when you, when you give that proposal, they should know the amount that's coming. You should be, you should be having that conversation with them ahead of time. So it's one of the things that I, that I took away that um, when I work with our gift officers here is if you're really unsure of that amount, um, the conversation before the, the ask in a sense is, is that feasibility conversation, that pre-proposal meeting to fully understand um, based on your previous conversation, the impact that could have, and this is the amount that, that impact could have <clears throat> and then in a sense float that amount out there and um, that should give you a good gauge of of where they are at with their own philanthropic goals and, and comfort level yeah i think other um, leaders have shared helping you know frame possibilities through options right here's you know scenario a scenario b scenario c this is what a million could do, two million, five million, or it could be a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, or even ten thousand, you know, twenty thousand, fifty thousand. But it's sort of the way that you know many companies will price their, you know, their basic, their premium, or their pro, and it sort of you know lets you self-select into where you feel, uh, you know, you're ready to to participate. And and so I don't know if you've had scenarios where, um, you know, where where presenting options have helped frame the discussion to, to donors. Yeah. And that's another one where everyone I think will have their own preference. I, I prefer um, a specific one specific amount. I, I think when you get into options, I, I, I understand the options approach, um, but any chance that you can remove confusion when making the ask, I think you try to do that. And maybe not every time, but I think, often when there are different amounts being offered in the, in the ask, it can create some confusion mm -hmm. from the donor. So I think if you can remove that aspect of it, um, I think it, it helps, it helps in the process. Without sharing anything confidential about, uh, a, about a specific donor or specific gift, are there any really memorable solicitations you've been in where you've been, I don't know, super nervous or really excited or unsure in spite of the six rights and the strategic giving framework and all of that? I mean, anything really stand out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's part of the fun of, of this profession and, and, and for the, uh, the fundraising industry is, is that excitement and that, that feeling you get in your stomach when you're about ready to, to go into a meeting to, to make that ask. And yeah, you know, what I, I guess what I refer back to is when I was in college with one of our um, assistant football coaches, he had the saying, expect to win. You know, so if you are doing and putting in the work and doing the things necessary throughout the week and at practice and, and whatnot, when you step on that field, you should expect to win. And in a sense, try to take that same approach with the six rights. You know, if you're doing the work ahead of time and putting the work in, then you should feel confident and feel good about that, that number, that ask that you put in front of of the individual, are they all going to say yes or go with that? No, that that's, that's not going to happen, but you should feel confident about it. And, um, you know, I, not all of them, I, I'm 
not everyone has said yes when when I made that ask either, but I, I, for the most part, I felt good about the numbers and the and the things that I put in front of people too. Because yeah. again, it, again, it hopefully in part of the cultivation, um, the part of the one of the rights, the right reason, the right purpose, is you're talking about the difference that that, that gift is going to make, the impact that it's going to have, the lives it's going to change, the opportunities it's going to open, and really that's what it's all about. Well, tell me a little bit about that because I know right now you are working on some some initiatives in campus that you believe in where you are out selling that impact. We've talked about uh, prior to this conversation, some of the work you're doing with Gallagher Blue Dorn. I think it's a great example of a very specific interest area that uh, is gonna resonate incredibly well for certain supporters and maybe not for others, but but I just love to kind of get your experience uh, in that context. Tell people a little bit about what that, um, what that fundraising initiative has been about. So the Gallagher Blue Door and Performing Arts Center is um, is a performing arts center here on campus that really serves Northeast Iowa um, as, as one of the top and premier performing arts centers for um, an institution like you and I size. Um, I, we are we're very proud of it. I think I think we should be. We get great performances in there. Um, when it was built 20 years ago, uh, it they did a tremendous job on, on the Great Hall, so where performances are held. So it's, it's, that's one of the top, um, I think, in, in the state, if not across the country. But one of the things that could have been done better, and it was for financial reasons, was the patron amenities um, and, and the patron experience and what that looks like. So what we are working on right now is an expansion and renovation of the Gallagher Brewer and really to enhance and improve the patron experience and amenities because we have the performance hall right. That one was done done well and done very well. Um, so now we need to expand and make sure when people attend, they have a full performance from, um, you know, from when they walk in the door to the final bow. Uh, so one of the things that we're talking about is, is the difference that this expansion and renovation will make for not only for patrons, but also for, you know, the kids that, that come to Gallagher Bluedorn and this is their first exposure to the performing arts. Um, how this will enhance the number of kids that we can get through and expose to the arts, how um, rather than, you know, sitting on, on the floor to eat lunch, they'll, we'll be able to provide um, a nice room, a lounge for them to sit and um, enjoy their lunch. So just really expanding the amenities to, to enhance the experience. It's been really interesting to learn about this because we've spent a fair amount of time with, with, you know, customers, partners in the sector that have done so much around the fan experience. When you think about like the athletic fan experience, how much that has been talked about. But I, I do see some really neat examples of the the patron experience in the arts, you know, really wanting to rival what we're doing for fans in the athletics arena. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, you know, our, our, the executive director of, of the Gallagher Born talks about, you know, people come to the Gallagher and they're okay with standing in lines because they're, it's just something that they do. They're nice. The Iowa nice. We've come to expect it, but that shouldn't be the way when you come to the arts, you shouldn't have to wait in line 10, 15 minutes for a glass of wine, or you shouldn't pick your seats um, closest to the door so you can get out first to use the restroom or to refill your wine or what, whatever it may be. Um, those things should should not be part of your decision making process when buying tickets or um, when coming to the show. So um, having that that full amenity experience that that really delivers, um, you know, moving from a ticket window to to kiosks, you know, where we can you can have more of an interaction, a point of point of sale. Um, pick up your pre ordered glass of wine, you know, those types of things, those types of experience that really make it. Because when people come, they come for the show and they come for the social experience. And standing in line isn't a great social experience. So how do we improve on that and really make make your your time at the Gallagher Blue Door and one to, one to remember? So really the same way that airlines have streamlined things through uh, mobile ticketing or, or a kiosk or um, uh, the way that fast casual restaurants are helping, you know, skip the line. Basically, how do we apply the same approach to the patron experience? Yep. Uh, I would imagine from a philanthropic perspective, that's an interesting project as well, because it's not necessarily a, an alumni constituency. I'm sure there's a tremendous mix of, of, of patrons, many of whom are alumni, but you've got broader uh, community and maybe, you know, even regional uh, community. And so how do you think about um, the kind of 
prospect identification and relationship building approach when you're not just talking about the core alumni constituency? Yeah, and you're right. It's it's uh, alumni, of course, but there's a lot of friends uh, from the community that um, that are involved in this process. It's, it's a community-based project, and, and um, you know we're looking at, of course, you're looking at who are friends of the Gallagher Boudoir right now, um, meaning who they they give to the annual campaign, who are who are ticket buyers, um, you know, who maybe gave to the to the project 20 years ago, um, who are the longtime volunteers, you know, we're taking a look at ushers, taking a look at um, people that serve on boards. You know, we're celebrating our 20th year at the Gallagher Blue Dorn um, this, this year. Uh, so who's, who's involved and actively willing to participate in those celebrations and help plan for them? Um, so taking a look at those types of things. And then, of, and of course, trying to identify um, you know, who are those individuals from a social engagement perspective that may, may interact with Gallagher Blue Dorn from a Facebook or Instagram that we can that we can identify and, and, and raise up to um, may have interest in this project. Yeah, as we've been getting to know each other, we, we did a little bit of research and we saw that there were nearly 20,000 fans on your Gallagher Blue Dorn Facebook page specifically. And I think one of the big questions we've we've been asking of the data with our partners is, okay, of those digitally engaged fans, how many have never bought tickets? Right. Of the people who have bought tickets, how many have never donated? And then how do you start using those different data points married with wealth indicators and so forth to really come up with um, an incredibly high affinity, very, uh, very knowledgeable set of prospects who also have the capacity to, you know, to really warrant the kind of um, extra level, uh, you know, VIP cultivation work that I'm sure you and the exec director are working on. So we're excited about continuing to try to dive into the data to to streamline the prospect identification approach. Yeah, we're looking forward to uh, working closer closely with you on that yeah. as well. Very cool. Um, I guess any other uh, you know thoughts when you think about uh, where the advancement sector is 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 over investing or big changes that you'd like to see um, in the sector. I mean, one thing you talked about was just uh, perception and 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 uh, you know even when you talk about the perspective of, of, of playing to win or expecting to win. Uh, you're obviously very passionate about the business of advancement, but, but what did you mean when you, when you wrote that you thought perception was an issue for the sector? Yeah. And so one thing that, that I've shared with you, I, you know, I love, I love this sector. I love fundraising. I love advancement. I love philanthropy. So I'm always trying to, to listen to podcast, read, um, you know, the master's program was, was very beneficial. And I think one thing that that did for me was open my eyes to the need of more research in our sector, in our industry, more research-based um, articles, books, various things. We have so much, so much knowledge, but, I, uh, but not, a lot of it may not be seeded in, in research. So, I think that provides can continue to help build the industry, provide validity to it. Um, you know, so you're so the perception of fundraising isn't necessarily a negative one, where it's more of a a positive one, which I firmly believe this is a tremendous industry. Um, we're doing significant things and great work and providing opportunities. Um, and I guess that's just as I think about my role in this, um, not only at UNI but in the in the bigger picture. What can I contribute? to this industry to help that, to help build the perception that this is a worthwhile um, place to work, to continue to recruit people into the industry so more people don't just fall into it, like like myself and, and others, we're more intentional about our efforts to draw and recruit. And, and I think once people are in it, they quickly realize how special a place it is. Absolutely. And obviously we're, you know, we're biased in the same way that you are, but I think, you know, it's striking that you, you mentioned the book, The Artful Journey earlier, yet you're also talking about maybe a more scientific journey uh, as well as we try to get more data driven. And, and I do think uh, that there's going to be a tremendous uh, career opportunities. And even frankly, with the change uh, that we've all been experiencing relating to coronavirus, it's going to change the way we work. It's going to change the way that donors uh, want to be engaged or comfortable be engaging. It's going to change even what the definition of 
the right location might be. Maybe the right location is a Zoom video call over the coming months and years, whereas even one year ago, that would have seemed um, uh, you know, completely uh, maybe inappropriate or, or, or uh, out of the question in some shops. And so it is an exciting time. You're obviously at the forefront of trying to embrace new ideas and new concepts while at the same time getting the work done, raising the money, not getting distracted. Um, and it's been really fun uh, getting to know um, you and your team. I guess in closing, are you hiring? Uh, are there other shops that are hiring maybe within your, your cohort from St. Mary's? Um, where would you recommend uh, a young professional who's looking to either start their career or advance their career turn to for resources as it relates to uh, the sector? We, we are hiring. Um, we are hiring uh, in our annual giving area. Um, in fact, we, as I mentioned at the start, we have somebody on campus today, a candidate on campus. We are hiring in our uh, student engagement in our alumni association. Um, and then we're also hiring in IT in our foundation. So we have three, three openings right now that we are trying to fill. Um, Obviously, I have to give a plug to, to you and I to come work here. Um, this is this is a tremendous place. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful for me to um, not go to school here, but I fully feel like I'm an adopted Panther and um, love this place. Uh, it's, you know, so much about where you work is the people. And there is just tremendous people here at the University of Northern Iowa that make it uh, a really, a really neat place to work, to come to school it's a tight knit community. And, and, you know, I always, you know, talk to students, um, of course, love talking to students. And that's what, that's what a lot of this work is about. But when you ask them, you know, what is it about you and I, and, and it's, it's about the relationships, you know, they're, they're not a number, um, the, the close relationships with faculty, with staff, um, with, with fellow students. So, and that, and that's the way I feel too. I love it. Well, Nate, thank you for giving us a window into your career. Uh, into your commitment to the sector and uh, and for also why you're so excited about UNI specifically. Uh, without further ado, we will wrap today's episode. Go Panthers. Go Panthers. Go Panthers.